Good evening. You're extremely welcome uh, to this, what's this event, which is the second event uh, in the uh, Europe at the Crossroads project, which the LSE European Institute and the European Council on Foreign Relations, uh, in partnership with the European Commissioner, delighted to be hosting. Um, we will be continuing up to next summer with some, um, I think, uh, interesting uh, and hopefully illuminating uh, gatherings. And I hope um, we'll keep you advised uh, as we go along of, uh, of the themes. There will be one in early February on uh, foreign policy, uh, and that will be to mark the launch of the annual ECFR um, foreign policy scorecard, which has become uh, a bit of sort of an, um, part of the annual um, think, tank, uh, think tank calendar. Um, now, I guess uh, it gets a bit hackneyed to talk about existential moments in the life of the European Union, and I'm going to be hackneyed and maybe just suggest that the current moment is perhaps even more existential uh, than, than, uh, than others. Um, and um, in dealing with a crisis, there seems to, uh, at least amongst the elites, as, as we all know, there's a sort of, sort of consensus of, that has emerged, namely that uh, uh, to deal with a, the a crisis uh, successfully, to find a sustainable solution, more Europe in some shape or form uh, will be uh, needed. Um, and um, so the mantra goes as I'm sure you know, we're embarked now on a sort of financial union that in turn should be embedded in a wider economic union and then that should be underpinned ultimately by a political union to give it legitimacy. At least that is the, the sequence of events, the assumption um, uh, behind this particular uh, idea, this particular way of resolving the crisis um, there's no assumption, of course, for the purpose of this discussion and debate uh, that, that is a, that that is necessarily a desirable scenario, that it is the only scenario. There will be uh, some, and I hope um, some, several, many perhaps this evening who will want, wish to contest that notion and, uh, and argue that political union is not necessarily uh, what is needed or in fact might be um, a, bad, uh, a bad idea. I think what we can all agree on, though, now, though is that until now, um, uh, the discussion in Europe about political union has been at uh, a certain uh, level of abstraction, shall we say, and I think that's putting it, putting it mildly. Um, a bit of kite flying by uh, the odd politician here and there, by, um, for example, the German foreign minister, uh, Westerbella, by um, um, Stoiber, for example, or uh, one or two French politicians, um, setting out their views, not necessarily with the imprimatur of the Elysee. It's a bit of kite flying here and there, uh, mostly with ideas that don't seem to be gaining traction. Um, and what we're going to try to do, hopefully this evening, is to try to pin down in a bit more detail what this idea of a political union could look like, what set of institutional arrangements um, are, are, are desirable, if indeed we think that that is, uh, that is the case. Um, so, as I say, um, sort of really a, a grounded discussion, which will inevitably take us into legitimacy uh, as well. We're not just looking at arrangements uh, which look uh, efficient or forms of institutional arrangements or decision-making uh, which just look, in theory, uh, efficient. We have to ask ourselves, are they going to be legitimate as well? So, as I say, uh, I think we have a, uh, the makings of a, of, a, of a good discussion, which is not primarily about futurology, nor is it one of the events which is trying to look at how we've come to where we are. Our discussion really is going to be about how perhaps we can get to a better place 
than we find ourselves in uh, than we find ourselves in now. There are a few givens, just thinking ahead for the next couple of years, a few things that we know for sure are going to happen, a few points in the political uh, calendar of the EU and its member states. We know that there will be elections in Germany in the autumn of 2013. Uh, we know that in 2014 there'll be European Parliament elections, there'll be a new European Commission. Um, there could be, uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps the latter part of 2014, maybe shortly after that, uh, a new institutional discussion and negotiation which could involve an intergovernmental uh, conference. Certainly, institutional reform in some shape, or rather, is on the, would appear to be on the agenda. So, in a sense, those are the givens, but that doesn't necessarily get us, uh, get us all that far um, in itself. Anyway, uh, plenty to talk about. Uh, we have an excellent cast list tonight, as I'm sure you've been able to, uh, to, to see. Um, unfortunately, Emma Bonino, who was originally going to join us, is unable to do so now um, for uh, domestic political reasons in, uh, in Italy. Um, but uh, we have a really a first-rate panel. And following our usual practice, fairly typical practice, perhaps I shall ask each speaker to speak for seven or eight minutes at most, introduce them as I go along, um, and then, of course, open to the floor. And I hope we're going to have uh, a lively discussion. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure we will. So without further ado, um, I shall ask uh, the first of our speakers uh, to kick off for us tonight, uh, um, José Ignacio uh, Torreblanca, who is sitting on my right, who is a columnist with uh, El País. He's also head of the European Council of Foreign Relations in Spain, in Madrid. Um, he has been ranked um, by, as amongst the ten most influential uh, new intellectuals in Spain and Latin America, which is a very nice accolade, um, indeed. And uh, uh, Jose Ignacio is going to share a few minutes of thoughts with us, and um, we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank, thank, thank you, you very much. You know, I am also teaching, but at the distance learning university in Madrid, so real students and real professors is not something I see much of, so it's great to have real people here today. Um, uh, we also do a lot of stuff on Google Hangouts and Skype, so it's not quite... So it's good to have a discussion on Europe. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, on political union, we tend to start from the assumption that, yeah, of course, more is better. Uh, who would be um, against uh, this, at least in pro-European countries, as, as, such as mine? People take for granted that we need more Europe to get out of this crisis. But, of course, the question is, you know, to when is more is, is, is more is better, you know, how much you need of this commodity, how can you get it, and what, you know, where should you settle if you cannot achieve your maximum goals, but what is the sufficient quantity of political union that you would need to, in order to get the system running. I propose to, to do a distinction because sometimes we get this... Um, concept probably you know, too much entangled, I think we have to make a distinction between politics, policies, and polity, the, the, the system as such. In terms of politics, we tend to claim that in this crisis, we need better politics, that is, um, we need more leadership. However, there is a contradiction in terms in asking for you know, more leadership and at the same time uh, ask for more democracy, because there is an essential tension between leadership and democracy. You know, uh, that uh, in a representative democracy, leaders are not supposed to take people where people do not want to be taken, but rather are there to represent the will of the people. But we tend to 
assume or to expect that European leaders will take people to places they don't want. And from this, from this perspective, in fact, you may argue that the politics or the leaders, though we complain that there is an absence of leaders, they're actually taking people uh, where they want, which is not really for more, you know, for, uh, to, to, to more political integration. All politics is local, still at the EU, mostly national, and leaders are oriented towards national politics. This is where they get elected, re-elected, or they lose power. So according to this, you may even argue that they are performing according to the incentives that they have. You want to change the system, it's fine, but it's a bit awkward from a democratic point of view to ask leaders to constantly violate uh, uh, the mandate for which they were elected, and none of them was elected and is not being re-elected at this point on platforms for more Europe in, in many countries. So that, for what it goes, that, that in respect to politics of it. In, in, in terms of policies, I think that it's very clear that uh, the EU is not performing, that uh, it's been doing too little too late, but also too narrowly, and that we need, uh, whether we like it or not, that we need more centralization and more powers and better policies at the European level. You may then opt out or you may opt in if you want, but it's very clear, at least from my perspective or from the perspective of those countries which are more pro-European, that this crisis was brought about because the EU, especially uh, European Monetary Union, is incomplete, both in its rules and in its scope and the authority that is given to its main institution. So lots of things have been done. In fact, you know, we complain a lot of the things that have not been done, but when you look at uh, all the things from the six-pack to the Europlus pack to the fiscal compact, there are lots of things there that have been done, and the rationale for this is to enhance the policy capacity of the EU and to uh, make it uh, 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 more able to deliver on what people want, which is basically growth and jobs. Uh, uh, but still, uh, this is not enough, and we are still uh, ahead of very important changes, banking union, fiscal union, monetary union. Um, there I think that the basic problem is to which extent, and this is a discussion that we're not having, we are discussing too much institutions, which is the last part of what I wanted to say, the policy thing, but we are not discussing the substance. Uh, if we move to a system in which in 2014 we would be able to elect or select a president of the commission which is more legitimate, which has a political platform, would that president of the commission be able to do what? Will we have a TARP in Europe? Suppose there is a progressive coalition winning the elections in the European elections. What would be the range of policy instruments at the disposal of this uh, sort of new government? We're not having this discussion. We are only discussing the procedures and the institutions. But we need to focus on what kind of uh, policies would they, would they be able to, to make. So far, the Commission and the Parliament have been, proposing, have been proposing things like Eurobonds, but this has not happened. So uh, it is clear that these institutions at this moment don't, do not have the capacity to deliver on things, they, even on things they agree on. So power is elsewhere. I, I move, uh, because I don't want to, to, to keep... Um, um, uh, to spend a lot of time on this, I move to the policy thing, which I think is um, even more complicated. Uh, 
I don't think there, there is a single political scientist which knows, has a clue of what a supranational, supranational democracy looks like. I mean, there, is, there, there are very, various ideas, various experiments, trials and errors, but we've never done this before. It hasn't been done before. We know that the institutions of the police, the institution of the nation state, are not going to work at the supranational level. And the worst we could do is to try to have a zero-sum game between democracy at the national level and democracy at the European level. So we don't know which institutions are going to work. Uh, what we know is that what we're doing at this point and we, what we try to do with the banking, fiscal, and economic union cannot be sustained with the very thin layer of legitimacy which we have at the existing moment. Um, you know, when I don't know if it's the same here, but if you have the same impression, but when I tell my students in Spain in class, you know, course 100 on the EU, the Commission proposes, the Parliament decides, you know, they just sort of laugh at, at this design. They very clearly perceive that power is elsewhere, that is in the ECB, that is in Frankfurt, that is in Berlin, that is somewhere else, and so on. So it is not, it is quite evident that we need to discuss the ways through which we will put uh, adequate legitimacy uh, into this new political system. Because de facto, we will have an economic federation if all these plans come through, even at the minimum levels of what a banking, a fiscal, and economic union uh, imply. This is a de facto economic federation. And it's a breach of the existing social and political pact in the European Union that uh, the union does not do welfare state, does not do pensions, does not do, does not do uh, uh, market, job, job, uh, market regulation, does not do health or education. So far, the EU has got into all these realms without having the adequate political backing and the political legitimacy, which is feeding into populism, which is feeding into uh, uh, dissatisfaction with national democracy because people ch change governments, but policies do not change accordingly. And I think there's a major issue uh, down the road for this. The way we do this, it's also very complicated because of the ratification rules and unanimity. And the last thing we would want to add at this point is a political crisis on the top of, a European, of an economic crisis. When we look back to 2005, in a time of economic bonanza, it was impossible to get through the treaty in, in, in France, the Netherlands, and many other countries. Think of what a, a process of ratification would look like now if it went through um, national parliaments or national electorates in, in many countries. So it has to be done, but uh, it has to be done in a very careful way so as not to um, uh, create a crisis which would add on to the existing um, economic, uh, economic crisis. And therefore, I think it is very important that we carefully weigh what we do with the next European elections. We, we run some risks of further politicizing the European sphere by having an elected government, but if we elect this government in the next European Parliament elections, and then that government does not have the capacity to deliver, uh, um, then we will create another uh, crisis and frustration, especially if that government uh, enters into deadlock and so on. There are various alternatives, we can discuss that, but I would basically um, stop here. If, if we, uh, sure. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much, Kozi Ignacio. Um, our second speaker is Ulrike Gejo.
who is uh, the ECFR's um, uh, representative for Germany. Um, she was uh, previously senior transatlantic fellow uh, with the German Marshall uh, Fund, and she's also and she headed the European Union unit, the German Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin. Um, uh, a very uh, well-known and highly regarded regular commentator on EU affairs. I'm sure many of you will have uh, heard her uh, talking on the EU in general, France and Germany, quite often. Uh, but her canvas is always a, a broad one. And Ulrika, we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Yeah, thanks for having me here. It's really a, a great pleasure. And um, just as you introduced us to this crisis and a deep shock, and so I was remembering that we moved offices two or three years ago, and I was throwing away all my sort of paper notes and so of the past decade. And I don't know how many papers I throw away with titles like Europe at the Crossroads, Europe in a Deep Crisis, the Future of the European <laughs> Union, and I've had so much of a déjà vu that um, sometimes you think of doing other things in life. So, um, I, by, by the way, the, the thing I found is that I found a, a presentation that I had in July 2007 in Rome where I basically would say that ultimately the EU would need Eurobonds. Huh? So, um, so that's to say that Europe is a little bit of repeating history and, um, and, and perhaps after all this crisis is not as big as we tend to perceive it, but perhaps uh, different crises in earlier times have also been already um, very uh, deep. But I agree that we have a very deep crisis. And what's the very deep crisis? I give you a German quote of Karl Schmidt, which is that sovereign is who decides about the emergency situation, right? So if we take this uh, definition of who is the sovereign, then sovereign today is the ECB. And this is a little bit short. Obviously, we cannot run a system with the ECB as sort of the main sovereign, so we do have a legitimacy <coughs> problem. And uh, the legitimacy problem is obviously what the Germans sort of try to shape with this whole discussion about political union. And um, I'm not saying that the, that the Germans have the right answers, but I think the Germans in a way have the right discussion. And I want you to lead you a little bit through the sort of German thinking, um, sort of where do we come from and what do we discuss when we come always with this in a way like uh, Nacho put it, like polity, what's the system in which we are going to shape what we could call the future European democracy? What are the core problems? How do we build the system? And what is the German thinking in this? Again, I'm not defending that the Germans have the right answers, but I do defend that the Germans probably have the same, have the, have the, um, um, uh, the right discussion. So um, talking about political union, I think what is behind essentially, and by the way, this is not a new discussion. For all those who have been following the discussion since the Maastricht making, it was a German discussion about political union. We came with what we called by then Croning theory, which is monetary union can only come at the end of a political union. So you need to um, have a political system first, then you can go for monetary integration. So basically, this also is a very big déjà vu discussion that we have 20 years after. I think what's the core point about it is that in Maastricht Treaty what happened essentially, and I think that's a lot of what um, Nacho also mentioned about the policies and the policies we cannot fix or Europe tries to fix the policies but does not have a legitimacy, is that we disentangled the state-market relationship. We basically put market and currency on the European level. We left redistribution politics, social politics, all the other regulatory policies, mainly on the national level. So we disentangled that relationship. But independently whether you come from Karl Marx and you are more lefty 
or you come from Hayek and you are more conservative, state market need to be on the same level of decision. So it's the derailment which basically causes lots of the problems that we have today, and it's because we couldn't fix the gap between currency and economy here and national policy there. So state market relationship from Schumpeter to Marx to whoever Hayek needs to be on the same sort of uh, level of decision, and that is what is this crisis about. So my guess would be in a very simplified version that either we put currency back to national levels and markets for, uh, back to national levels and we cut bits and pieces of the single market, or we lift the policy system, meaning the political system, in one way or the other up to a European level of decision-making, which would enable us to have responsibility basically about expenditure on the same level than liability. The whole discussion over the past two years, especially the Anglo-Saxon discussion, was much about big bazooka solutions, eurobonds, and so on and so forth, right? So what have the Germans been doing, and why was the German answer what it was? The German answer is you cannot put eurobonds before precisely having the political union feature, which is you put the responsibility on expenditure on the same level than the mutualization of debt. And this question is still a big question mark in the system. For all those who have read the recent report which the Commission brought out last Wednesday on the genuine economic and monetary union. There is again in the third step, and I'll come to this later, there is again the claim to go for euro bills and for the redemption fund. So there is still the claim, the policy claim for mutualization of debt of some point, debt of the past, debt of the future, euro bills ultimately. So what the, what's the German discussion here? The German discussion, and this is by the way, also, I mean, it's not only obviously a German discussion, but the German thinking is, if you want to organize this responsibility, meaning budgetary oversight about common expenditure, because Eurobills ultimately are more or less common uh, liabilities on, on what you, what you um, uh, dis uh, expense. Um, you need to have a parliamentarization of the system. So the German discussion so far has been much about Eurozone Parliament and Eurozone budget because it basically states that the legitimacy question can only be solved if you have a sort of budgetary common control about those who issue common debt. This might be weird because there's precisely this Habermas transnational democracy and there are a million arguments why this can ultimately not work. Language is one, uh, passion is one, uh, how you organize a, a really full-fledged passionate debate in a Eurozone parliament, uh, does translation work in a, in a... I mean, so there are lots of cultural questions why it cannot work. But if you go down the road and you read all these cultural judgments on where does the German hesitation come from if we consider that ultimately solutions, Anglo-Saxon solution on eurobonds, then the key is the parliamentarization of the European Union. Yeah? So leaving aside the cultural problems for a moment, what are the more institutional problems here? The more institutional problems obviously are also together with France against culture, because if you consider that Franco-German relations have always been sort of tipping point and critical mass for institutional developments in the European Union. We will ultimately need to find arrangement, especially with France, not saying that the other countries do not matter, but again, I think that Franco-German relations matter most in this respect. So what has been the discussion about in the past months? The discussion of the past months has essentially been that the Germans are all about parliamentary oversight and control, and the French are all about discretionary politics and executive mechanisms, right? 
So in a way, this is easily understandable because these countries come from different parliamentarian or, say, not parliamentarian traditions in the case of France, um, and because the French have the fear of force republic and so on and so forth. But I think if we are now shaping the transnational democracy called European democracy, then this will be the key point. How do we organize a sub-entity of the European Parliament of those who are in the Eurozone and who have special voting rights on what already has been called a Eurozone Parliament, which must necessarily be the, uh, about a Eurozone budget, apologize, a Eurozone budget, which must be a budget with higher fiscal transfers than for the rest of the Eurozones. So um, this already, you can read it in the speech of Angela Merkel that she has delivered in front of the European Parliament of 7th of November, where basically France and Germany already have more or less agreed on having a higher transfer mechanism in the Eurozone, in the forthcoming Eurozone, as sketched out, by the way, also again in this von Rompuy report. And the next, I think, very important Franco-German cleavage here is that the Germans want to have this as more or less a special fund which uh, you can drag on if you need special money to help your industries and to mo promote growth. But the French, and this is important again for what Nacho says in terms of policy, the French are more about automatic, permanent automatic stabilizers. What do they mean by this? What they mean, for instance, one proposal is that within the Eurozone, rather than shifting sort of, you know, Germany pays for Greek and having this national versus national net contributor dis uh, discussions, you would have, for instance, a European unemployment assurance, which would be an intransparent fiscal transfer in which today, for instance, Germany would pay largely for unemployed uh, Spanish uh, youngsters who are unemployed, right? So if we did this, it's just one idea. But then we come very close to what Nacho has just sketched out, which is poli policies in which the legitimacy is increased because we are working on assurance systems in the macroeconomic field and no longer on national bargaining systems, right? And in that way, you would basically uh, have a legitimacy for what uh, Sloterdijk, Peter Sloterdijk, the German philosopher, recently called welfare patriotism. So you also create an identity-building element that attaches citizens to the European Union because the European Union deals with welfare. Um, Obviously, this demands a different uh, European Union. This demands a Eurozone Parliament. This demands a Eurozone budget. This demands also, um, basically, that you um, uh, get in place these macroeconomic stabilizers. But if you read, again, the report which has just been issued last Wednesday, most of this is in there in a three-step approach. The first step approach is we finish banking union now, and we do um, uh, um, contractual oversights of the macroeconomic uh, coordination. The second step uh, is to basically go for a huge amount of tax harmonization and the proposal of transnational social security systems. And the third step between five and ten years from now would be also to go for new own resources. So obviously the European system is always slower than um, people want to have it. And uh, if you go from Werner report to the making of uh, currency union, you, it took 30 years and not 10 years. But having these visions skitzed out, I think there's a lot of um, happening now in the European Union that if things go not too bad, 
it's fair to argue that we are completely restructuring the economic and fiscal basis of the monetary union as of now, probably slower than expected, probably not with an overwhelming sort of enthusiasm, um, but still. So there are a couple of, 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 of key dates out. One is the German elections. I tend to not overstate the German elections because whatever you get, you get the same policy. I think there's one big <laughs> misunderstanding, which is that if only you get the Social Democrats, policy will change, or if you get red-green, then policy will clearly change. I mean, I think Steinberg is more conservative than many people in the CDU, so don't, don't get this wrong. I think in, 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 in aggregate, German policy will more or less remain what it is. Um, so Then two key dates, 2014. That's the UEP elections and that's the new commission. I bet that the European Parliament uh, parties will run differently their elections and come with a sort of... Um, um, a top candidate for the uh, for the position of the European Commission. So we will see uh, um, uh, uh, probably a new dynamic. So I guess what I'm saying is that I'm not blind and naive that there are not half a million risks out there. Huh? There's Greece, there's Spain, there, there's uh, populism. So there are lots of dangers and also there are unknown dangers external dangers which impact on the way that the European Union can move itself through this crisis. But I would bet that today there's a lot of energy in the system, there's a lot of creative thinking how to basically renovate completely the whole socio-economic setup of the European Union. And if we are a little bit creative, then this is really um, a very special moment in history, like a Hegelianian transition from the synthesis to the next thesis. Huh? Um, where we have the chance to really create a new trans-European democracy. Um, and 2014 is probably a key date because uh, I would also bet that we go for a convention and that we go for some sort of treaty change. And if uh, there is this UK and what the US, UK can do, I'm very clear. I think the system has decided that if UK blocks, then we do it by a Schengen-style sort of intergovernmental agreement. So I think the UK will not have deadlocking capacity on what the continental system does, to make this very clear. And I think that between today and 2016, if everything goes good and uh, or well, and we don't have a major external shock to the system, we are living in a very different mm -hmm. European Union. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ulrike. Um, our third uh, speaker is uh, Anthony Teasdale, who I'm sure will be known to quite a few of you. He's director of... Uh, EU Internal Policies in the European Parliament. He's Senior Visiting Fellow in the LSE uh, European uh, Institute. Um, he has uh, served as Special Advisor in the last Conservative administration here to the Foreign Secretary, Sir Geoffrey Howe, and then to Ken Clark, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, he's been Deputy Chief of Staff to the President of the European Parliament, Josie Buschek, and Head of Strategy and Policy for the EPP Group. And most recently, he has published uh, a new updated and expanded edition of the Penguin Companion to European Union, uh, an excellent volume which I warmly commend to you. Anthony. Um, <coughs> thank you very much indeed, uh, Morris. Um, hello, everybody. Um, I was looking through some papers recently, and uh, I threw out uh, a copy of Umonde, uh, 1962, July 1962, with the banner headline, Political Europe is Born. <laughs> And it uh, puts this debate a little bit in perspective because there is a sense, and I think the focal point is, you know, what is political Europe and what is political union going forward. It puts, I think, in perspective the fact that this is a, a phenomenon which has a rather ephemeral character 
and has meant a lot of different things over many years to a lot of different people, and there have been many, many false dawns. Uh, it may turn out that this moment also proves to be a false dawn. Nobody can yet know. I think that what we can say with some certainty is that the um, combination of the Lisbon Treaty on the one hand and the Eurozone debt crisis on the other is changing the way that the European political system operates really quite quickly and considerably. And the last two speakers have identified some of the debates and some of the trends that are coming out of this. I would be more cautious in my own analysis of of what's going on. Um, If you go back, track back only about three years, there was a measure of certainty as to what was going to happen next. And then things took a very, very different direction. There was a sudden upsurge in summitry. There was a sudden upsurge in intergovernmental cooperation. There was a sudden creation of new bodies and institutions, mainly outside the treaty framework. There was a rush towards what used to be called two-speed, now two-tier Europe. None of these things were predicted only three or four years ago. And I think it's quite difficult to project forward with any certainty what the situation will look like in 2014 or 15 or 16. I take the point that there are a number of quite important events which are coming up, the German election, the European elections, the possibility that there will be a a new convention and intergovernmental conference. But I don't think we should rush into too quick a a determination as to the likely outcome. What I do think will have to be addressed in this process, however, is the fact that some of the changes which are occurring as a result of the Eurozone debt crisis are, are ones which are deparliamentarizing the European Union. And here I agree very much with the last speaker in the sense that I think that the, one of these unexpected developments has been what everybody assumed that the Lisbon Treaty had done, namely complete the parliamentarization of, of, of the European Union with the new powers for the European Parliament in particular uh, and the greater role of national parliaments that were foreseen in the treaty, has not really played out as expected New centres of executive authority are emerging, both intergovernmental and at community level, but executive authority, which need to be brought under greater parliamentary scrutiny and control. And it's going to be really quite difficult to design these mechanisms. Why will it be difficult? Because we know from hard experience that it is very, very problematic to try to assert national parliamentary control of EU decision-making. To be effective, it's something that needs to encompass uh, up to 27 or more member state national parliaments, which is extremely difficult to coordinate. Uh, If you give effectively a veto to one national parliament, the sort which the ESM treaty originally did uh, and the FSF arrangement originally did, what you find is that the moment that a a parliament, the Finnish parliament, the the Dutch parliament, the Slovenian parliament, the Slovakian parliament, whatever it might be, asserts that authority, there is a, a, a blockage in the system which means that you have to somehow get around it, and that is not particularly healthy. So those treaty arrangements, uh, both intergovernmental, incidentally, the EFSF agreement and the ESM treaty were adjusted to effectively remove the veto of national parliaments over what would occur. If you look to the growing power and role of the European Parliament, it is extremely difficult to see how these new arrangements are going to be connected with the, uh, uh, with the Parliament without going down the route uh, which has been mentioned now 
of some kind of two-tier or two-speed European Parliament. There is a deep resistance still within the Parliament to this notion because it institutionalises a notion of the European Union which many people, most people in the European Parliament, feel very uncomfortable with. So there's going to be a very difficult uh, and protracted debate, I think, uh, uh, about this. The second sort of broad sort of proposition I would make is that although there's been a growth of the executivization of the European Union, we still do not have a single centre that holds. There are too many executive bodies in competition with each other, and this too needs to be sorted out. Often it's asserted that the solution to this is to merge the post of President of the European Parliament, uh, President of the European Council, rather, and President of the European Commission. But that itself leads to uh, some quite serious and difficult uh, issues. My own view, for what it's worth about this, is that the, the centre that holds is not going to be particularly strong, that we're going to retain this competitive element with lots of different forces in play. The European Commission, the European Central Bank, the IMF now, increasingly uh, the Eurogroup institutionalised through the Euro Summit and the Eurogroup of Finance Ministers, uh, and so on. And that the real issue is going to be about how to get these to work in tandem effectively in the future and how to make them accountable to uh, democratic institutions. I think there is also a tendency in the debate to take too literally some of the language and some of the rhetoric which accompanies the European integration process. Uh, in a way, Europe needs to put its money where its mouth is. We have a budget at the moment still of only 1% of GDP. That's exactly the same as it was 20 years ago. Uh, if you go back to the McDougall report in the 1970s, it would have seemed inconceivable that a deeper European Union would still have such little or so few budgetary capacities as now. That may be a good thing, it may be a bad thing, but one thing is clear, that without additional budgetary resources in some form, it's very, very difficult for European Union institutions to play a decisive role in the resolution of the uh, uh, current crisis and over the longer term the development of uh, mechanisms that will work uh, in the uh, medium to long term. Now, that mismatch between a rhetoric which asserts that we're going to have a fiscal union and a reluctance of the heads of government to move beyond 1%, indeed to argue about a relatively tiny proportion, brings into, into stark relief, in my view, this disjunction between the rhetoric and the reality of the way that the European Union functions as a political system. And I think that we should bear that sober kind of reflection in mind when we think uh, about the future. Uh, on one of the points that's been raised about the possible election of the Commission President or a, a, a government in some form, here again, I'm rather cautious in my view. Um, this discussion going on among the political parties and the political groups at European level about running candidates for the post of President of the European Commission. But what's very interesting about this is the marked reluctance of many people to declare their hand as potential candidates. And why is this? For obvious reasons. If you're an incumbent Prime Minister or you're an incumbent Foreign Minister, the idea that you might first of all have to seek and obtain the nomination of your political family and then you might have to wait and see who might win the European elections and what winning the European elections actually means acts as a very, very serious constraint on actually running for office. 
so I think it's not without accident that we're now seeing in Brussels the emergence of a debate about whether Jose Manuel Barroso might indeed seek a third term as president of the European Commission because of the advantage which he has as an incumbent. And so it's possible... I wouldn't say it's the most likely outcome, but it's possible that one of the ironic effects of this current debate is to actually make it more difficult to change the person who's holding the office of President of the European Commission and make the outcome less reflective of any particular um, uh, result in the forthcoming European elections. So I'll just leave it at that, if I may. Anthony, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And last but not least, um, Mark Leonard, uh, who's Director of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, he's been, before that, Director of uh, Art of the Foreign Policy Think Tanks, of the uh, Director of Foreign Policy at the Centre for European Reform, uh, formerly uh, headed the Foreign Policy Centre, uh, well known uh, as a, a lively and regular commentator in European media on European developments and uh, various books to his name, looking... Uh, particularly at uh, China and EU and China matters, amongst other uh, sort of e- always placing the EU on a sort of global on a global canvas, uh, amongst other things. Um, Mark, um, please, the floor is yours. Thanks, Morris. <clears throat> um, I would like to start with one of the points that Anthony raised, which was this gulf between uh, the rhetoric and reality that came out of the, the latest discussions about the multi-annual financial framework, because I think that uh, there is a certain clarity which uh, discussions of money bring to uh, political situations. And that discussion about the budget, for me, revealed quite a lot about the whole notion of political union uh, over the next few years, and pointed really to, to what I think are three quite big, possibly unbridgeable uh, gaps which are starting to emerge within the, the European project. One is, is uh, a stalemate uh, between states at a European level. The second is uh, an emerging gap between all European elites and their citizens. And the third is uh, a gap between different, idea, different European projects and different ideas of what a political uh, union means. And in a way, the, the debate about the budget showed how severe all three of those uh, arenas are. I mean, the first is, is this sort of stalemate between governments, which Ulrike did a great job of, of discussing. I mean, uh, if you start with France and Germany, and you use the... the if you look at the, the phrases which the two governments are talking about, they are basically uh, point to a, a complete breakdown in, in the relationship between Paris uh, and Berlin... Uh, there have been breakdowns before, but this is certainly worse than it's been for, for many, many years. I, I wondered whether this was just a creation of newspaper headline writers and, uh, and people who are looking for crises. Because as Ulrika says, I don't think there's a day since the European Union was created when the newspapers didn't talk about a European crisis. I remember when I wrote uh, a book on Europe running the 21st century looking at how many... Uh, mentions of Europe and crisis there were together and they were s- s- the, the two practically don't appear separate from each other <laughs> you had million t- millions and millions of, uh, of, of cases uh, of the, uh, I mean it was, it was one of the most uh, uh, frequently fa- findable combinations in, in Google but uh, nevertheless 
when you have these two notions which have emerged uh, as the crisis has got worse. One is the, the sort of German idea of political union, which basically means that um, the German elite, as Ulrike was saying, sees the, their liability to debt in other countries growing and growing, but they feel their ability to control the spending... Uh, in other European countries and the behaviour of other European governments lessening by the day. And there was a, a, a real crisis when Angela Merkel uh, showed up at the summit uh, a few months ago and uh, was visibly ganged up on by a bunch of um, robber <laughs> highwaymen <laughs> from southern Europe. Name them, <laughs> name them. Can't, can't imagine. Uh, who were trying? Who were after after all this hard-earned German money? And, the, and when she returned back home, the headlines in the German newspapers were were absolutely catastrophic. And I think there was a decision made uh, in the German Chancery that though she doesn't want to be the, the, I think she is genuinely committed, much more so than anyone in Britain realizes, to stopping the euro from collapsing. And I think that she did look over. The, the abyss last summer and decided that she didn't want to be the, not this summer, but the summer of 2000, the year before, and decided she didn't want to be the Chancellor who oversaw the end of the, of the euro. And I think there is a real steel and determination there, which is underestimated in the Anglo-Saxon press. At the same time, Germans don't trust um, uh, other countries, and they want to make sure that if they are committing themselves to greater liabilities, they have some sort of control. And the phrase for that is political union, which means we won't give any more solidarity unless we can actually take all tax and spend decisions outside of the political sphere and constitutionalise it. Um, and they call it political union. What it really means is anti-political union. It means the national politics is fine to argue about crime, about uh, educational standards... Uh, about collection of dustbins, all sorts of things which don't add to the balance sheet for hard-working Germans. Uh, these are acceptable areas for national politics to discuss. But questions about tax and spend need to be taken out of the uh, realm of political contestation so that we can sleep at night. Uh, uh, so it's a caricature, but actually it's not that different from the idea behind the Maastricht Treaty when it was originally designed. That's what the convergence criteria were meant to be uh, doing, and, and people realise that that hasn't worked, so they want to find a way of, of, of constitutionalising that. Same time, if you go to Paris, the mirror image phrase for political union which has been developed uh, is the idea of uh, l'intégration solidaire, which basically is a French way of saying... We signed up, Sarkozy might have been enough of a sucker to sign up to your fiscal compact uh, on the grounds that you were going to give us uh, all sorts of solidarity, euro bonds, other sorts of goodies which would calm the markets down. But those things never came. And we're not going to give over any more sovereignty or any more political control until you put some real money uh, on the table. So if you look at what the Germans, uh, what the French... Uh, want to get out of the discussions, they're not very enthusiastic about greater budgetary controls, about greater roles for parliaments of any kind, national, European, any kinds of parliaments. The two things which they're interested in are euro bonds or some kind of version of these things and some sort of, uh, as Ulrika was saying, automatic stable, some way of, of 
actually uh, responded to asymmetric shocks in the Eurozone with, uh, with uh, socialised European spending. So the two camps have laid out their terms and conditions and said we're not budging uh, until the markets force us to. We know that when the markets create a crisis, there'll be an overnight negotiation. Decisions will be made at five in the morning and we're going to hang on until that happens and we will pull you over as far as possible to our side of the agenda as, as we possibly can. But in the meantime, we're sticking to our guns. So that's the sort of... Uh, gulf between Paris and Berlin. But I think that, that you know, uh, which is a sort of structural uh, part of the architecture which everyone's sort of operating around. There are all sorts of national peculiarities in other countries. But for, for um, the first time in a long time, the Franco-German relationship is actually working as it does when it's at its best, which is that the two countries are sufficiently different so that if they can agree with each other, it does mean there'll be some sort of a European uh, compromise that many people uh, can live with. But the second gulf, I think, is even more dramatic, which is the gulf, the stalemate with, with Europe's citizens and the gulf between elites and, and citizens. Because the strange thing about uh, the governments of Europe today is that they're probably the most, though people talk about the lack of uh, vision, the lack of commitment to Europe, lack of... Uh, uh, a European spirit, the death of Kuhl and Dehan, etc. I think that if you look at the leaders of European countries person for person today and compare them to their predecessors at any time in history, these are people who are more socialised by the European Union than anyone uh, who worked in their countries beforehand, for whom Europe is not just uh, some sort of theoretical vague idea, but it's a, it's a it's completely integrated in the way that they see every single aspect of policy making in their countries, all decisions. Uh, they are products of a completely interdependent economic system. And um, they have quite a deep understanding of, of what needs to be done. At the same time, they could not be more different from their, uh, from their constituents. <laughs> um, and they are not shielded from their constituents in a way that previous generations of European uh, leaders were. And they don't feel that they can actually explain what needs to be done at a European level to save the euro and to keep the European uh, project alive. And that uh, is something which manifests itself in all sorts of, of different ways. One of the most poignant ways that it's been described was uh, I think many of us remember those incredible images we saw of Italy in November of 2011 when Berlusconi fell and you saw people <coughs> wandering around the streets, uh, ringing on the horns of their cars. And it looked like the Arab Spring. It looked like here was a kind of new 1989 moment in the heart of Europe, a horrible repulsive regime had collapsed and uh, had been replaced well, by, uh, by uh, an inspiring new leader. And I, I was in Rome last week and we met with Corrado Passero, one of the technocrat ministers. And it, it is really remarkable if you talk to them what they're doing. It is a truly inspirational project that, that they're embarked upon. But the truth was this was no Arab Spring. The people who got rid of 
Silvio Berlusconi weren't the Italian citizens. They were the financial markets working at a symbol from, from Angela Merkel and Nicolas Sarkozy who giggled uh, on camera. <laughs> and the two <laughs> forces together overthrew a democratically elected government. It so happens that most Italians were, were cool with, with the outcome and there were a lot of Italians who, who hadn't voted for Berlusconi who were thrilled to see the, the back of him. But this is basically... Uh, 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 the, the whole idea of more Europe, the things that we've been talking about, the things that I think everyone on this panel would sign up to, these are not the things which most European citizens uh, are desperate to, to, to see Europeanized and socialized. And actually, if there is a new treaty along the lines that Ulrika uh, talked about, which is made up of a sort of grand bargain between the anti-political German approach and the anti-ration solidaire of, of France, I think it's going to be pretty difficult to, um, to sell it to, uh, to citizens in different countries. There are several member states where there would need to be a referendum if there is a, an intergovernmental conference and a, and a convention. Um, you know, we've all seen what happened in, in Ireland at various points. Though the Irish did just vote yes for the, for the fiscal compact, but there was a very direct connection between their voting... <laughs> pattern and their access to, 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 to uh, the money of the ESM. I don't know whether the connection will be as strong in 2016 when the crisis has, uh, has, has subsided. But what I'd be more worried about is, is, is what would happen in two other countries. Uh, in this country, I'm sure this Sunday will debate later on, but if there are any transfers of sovereignty, there is now a referendum lock, which would mean there would have to be a referendum in this country. But the country I'd be most worried about is actually France. It's, it's not that difficult to work out what the no campaign would say if you have a treaty which institutionalizes all the things that the Germans want, which is greater budget discipline, economic coordination, which they talk about, which uh, they, they call Lisbon with teeth, so sanctions for countries that don't commit Germanic-style economic uh, reforms. Um, even if it does have some sort of fiscal capacity which could be used for an unemployment scheme, but though I don't think the Germans are ready to sign up for that. Uh, I do think that it's, it's a much more targeted scheme, as Ulrike was talking about. And, even, uh, and, and if you had political oversight, which would overturn the, the balance between this overweening executive and the, the parliament in France. I don't think it's that difficult to work out how the no campaign in France would, would campaign against that. So that's the, anyway, that's the sort of third gap. And then the fourth one, which I'll just do more quickly but end with, is, is also um, there does seem to be a conflict between different ideas of what a political Europe is. I mean, personally, I have always thought that the, the euro uh, and the project of, of creating a European single currency is uh, something to be supported wholeheartedly, partly because uh, it, it is the, the most complete form of, of, uh, of political integration that anyone's ever seen uh, on the planet. It allows, uh, in theory, some of the barriers to other Europe's, like the single market, to be, to be lessened and, in theory, also allows Europe to play a different role on the world stage by giving it access to tools of economic statecraft which have served other big political blocs like the United States very well uh, in their own development. But uh, what seems to be happening in this period of disintegration is that there is a conflict between or a potential conflict between the measures which are needed to save the, the euro and those which are needed to safeguard some other successful 
equally inspirational European political projects. The idea of creating a single market with half a billion uh, consumers, the idea of pacifying the European continent and uh, ending uh, the uh, unhealthy competition between different nation-states uh, in our part of the world. And the, the fourth European project, which is the idea of a global Europe that can actually stand on its own two feet in a world where other continental-sized powers, such as China and America, are increasingly setting the rules. Um, and uh, what we haven't resolved yet is how the politics of uh, a, a, a reinforced and reintegrated Eurozone can be uh, developed in a way that doesn't undermine these three other European projects. And I think, in a way, that's probably the big project for the, for the next few years, rather than uh, the idea that it's, it's simply about some sort of Cartesian attempt to, to go back to where Giscard d'Estaing sort of um, uh, uh, ended with his convention um, and to, to try and build a, a perfect political union which has got a single system. I think the real challenge is to see how you can get these four European projects to coexist with each other in a way that allows Europe to be a force uh, to be reckoned with in the 21st century, one which is able to set the rules of global trade rather than simply respond to decisions made in Beijing and Washington. Well, Mark, I knew we could rely on you to take us big picture and not to get into too much institutional navel-gazing, and you've done, you've done just that. Um, we've had a very good discussion. Um, just a couple of thoughts that occurred to me, um, and always keen to try to sort of bring things down to earth, earth uh, with, a, with, with a bump. And, I mean, the two obvious um, elephants in the room, um, which we didn't really touch on much, if at all, one is what is actually negotiable between governments. We are still an EU of nation-states, um, nation-states who realize they have to do something and that collective problems require collective solutions, sure. Um, but are they prepared uh, to set up institutions which enjoy a comparable degree of uh, democratic legitimacy to the nation-state? Um, is France, let alone Britain, is France prepared to agree um, to many of the ideas, most of the ideas perhaps that are being kicked around for political union, elected president, perhaps a European Commission, elected president of the European Council, um, it seems to me um, highly, highly questionable. Um, so there's negotiab negotiability between governments, and there's also the question, the no small question of uh, getting the assent of the people to treaty change. And we know that uh, after the bruising experience between Larkin and Lisbon, with some seven years of institutional wrangling, and disrupted, of course, or plans uh, derailed in 2005 by um, two uh, referendum results, the Netherlands and the Netherlands and France. And uh, certainly at the back of most European politicians' heads, perhaps in the foremost in their thinking, or it ought to be if it isn't there, is uh, uh, what are the actual realistic prospects of being able to get through another set of institutional changes, treaty changes, um, where they require treaty changes, and most substantive ones would require treaty change, of actually getting those approved uh, by, by the electorate. Um, because, as we know, many countries will certainly have, uh, have referendums uh, rather than parliamentary ratification. And even parliamentary ratification is going to look uh, difficult in some countries. So there's that as well. The only other thought that occurred to me in the discussion was where, um, uh, that when we talk about boosting legitimacy, um, ideally, ultimately, through some kind of European demos, um, 
by building a politics of contestation in Europe, in which people feel involved, uh, and somehow they therefore accept the new rules of the game. Um, most of the ideas for that are, uh, are still somewhat vague. It's not to say that they're not going to happen. I myself would have serious doubts as to whether uh, they are actually uh, workable or attractive to most people. But there is another form of legitimacy, um, which political scientists in the, in, in, the, in the dull jargon call output legitimacy. Is there just a possibility that if the EU starts to do things right, resolves the euro crisis, um, uh, gets back on a path of economic growth, takes measures to boost uh, sort of openness and transparency and um, some steps to regain the trust of uh, voters, but above all, seem to deliver the kind of goods that people expect of it, could it not sufficiently, uh, if not build enthusiasm for the European project, but to sufficiently build legitimacy without having um, to dream up more and more plans for how to extend yet further powers of the European Parliament or to elect the President of the European Commission? Uh, is there another route, in other words, to building, uh, to building uh, legitimacy? Anyway, just a few, uh, a few thoughts. We've got about uh, half an hour. Um, I'm going to, I'm afraid, take the, the, use the sort of clustering questions uh, method and, uh, and just leave the panellists at liberty to answer the ones that uh, uh, tickle their fancy uh, most. Uh, if I could just ask you to keep it, please, please, please keep it short and sweet. Don't try to smuggle a second question in uh, with the first. Uh, say who you are and what your affiliation is uh, and we'll get, we'll get cracking. So uh, who would like, um, uh, like to ask a question? Um, Robert Cooper. Well, uh, uh, life is full of surprises. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, life is life is full of surprises, and there are clearly lots and lots of those coming now. Um, but the big surprise in this is that we somehow expect to happen a whole lot of things which, speaking personally, I don't mind the scenario which Ulrika pointed. In fact, I also find it difficult to see any other functioning. But if you look at it realistically, the number of people who really want this is very small. It's just that they all don't want the alternative. And to to embark on gigantic changes like this because you can't think of any alternative, is it really going to happen? Thank you, Robert. Yeah, um, please. Uh, question, um, yes, at the top. Robert Morden. Uh, these are not necessarily close friends or, or cronies. If you hear me uh, mention a name, I have it. simply somebody I recognize, um, but I will not be giving them a priority. It just happens by fluke, please. Uh, yes, uh, Robert Morland. Um, I'm a former member of the European Parliament, and I ought to assure everyone I'm not your enemy. Um, Robert, can you speak up just a little bit? Even, I know you've got the mic. But, right yeah, here. Go. Okay, I'm right up to it. Um, my question is quite simply, there are two areas of uh, European policy which I notice have not been mentioned. One is by far the biggest in terms of legislation, which is the internal market. And what I wonder is whether that actually has a lot of implications for you, because certainly we're very conscious here that if we have a banking union, that may muck up what we wanted, which was an internal market on financial services. Um, 
uh, as well as actually an internal market, does have implications in terms of common economic policy. And the other is foreign policy. And I was struck this morning when I woke up and I heard the British government and then the French government was going to recall its, their ambassadors to Israel because of the occupied territories developments. And knowing that this was something I think every government in Europe actually condemns Israel for why we weren't talking about an EU um, action on it. And it does seem to me that we are sort of stumbling along on foreign policy rather than taking cohesive action, and, so, and we are going to be forced to do more. Thank you very much. Uh, take one more question in this round. Uh, who else would like to um, ask a question? Um, yes, the gentleman up there. If you can just wait for the microphone, just thank you. Uh, Christopher Martin, member of the public. At the moment, <laughs> as we... I'm not a, I'm not a professor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at, at the moment, there's a lot of antipathy towards the European Union from the general public. The fundamental reason for that is the democratic deficit. How can the institutions of Brussels be brought closer to us here to be made to seem more relevant to our lives? Is some kind of subsidiarity or devolution the way forward? Thank you very much. Um, I shall invite the panel to answer questions as they see fit, and, but please, please keep it short and sweet. It would be nice to fit in two more rounds if possible before we close. Ulrika. Well, I take the last question, the one of Robert Cooper, about the scenarios. You know, I mean, we are obviously struggling with the question how to make a Turkey organize a Thanksgiving, right? I mean, this is basically the, uh, uh, the question of the nation state and the role of the nation state in the institutional system. But the only thing I can say, and I don't have the answers, but posing the right question is uh, perhaps a guidance for the answers. But if you can, if it's translated, I guess, and I hope, is the very wonderful book of Robert Menasse, who is an Austrian essayist and who just wrote a book which the German title is the Europäische Landbote. And it reminds the Hessische Landbote, which was the revolutionary appeal uh, before 1832 in Germany, right? And he makes clearly the point that either the Europe of nation, national states sort of fails or overcomes itself, or the project of overcoming the, super, the, the nation state fails. So either way. And I think he's right. I mean, I'm not sitting here arguing that the scenario I sketched out is the one, and uh, that's the question of public legitimacy, whether we get there, that's a scenario we can make. I mean, there are half a million reasons why it's awfully difficult because of the resistance of nation-state and so on and so forth. But um, I'm sitting here to say that if we don't do it or we find an answer, the system fails anyway. The system we are living in, and that's why I came here with Carl Schmidt, which is normally not a thinker you quote easily, we cannot accept that the sovereign of the EU system at large is the ECB. It just doesn't work. So we find a solution. I guess we have a window of time of two or three years, 2014, 2015, and then we make it work, what I call the parliamentarization of the European Union, or we don't make it work. But then I, I, I would bet that the system fits. Is France ready? The question was also, I think France is. 
not easily. I mean, the, but but I just spent six weeks in France, and the country is deeply discussing its own political modernization. They know that they have to do a economic, but also a, um, a political modernization. And again, I come with Robert Cooper. What's the alternative? I mean, the alternative of having France as the front runner of the South uh, against a German authority argument is, is just probably not. It's like in German you say, "Unter Blinden ist der einäugige König." You know, so. Uh, it's, it's not an option for, for France. And the thing is that once you look in the abyss, you come back to sort of let's do Europe rather than being in the abyss. And here's your question. I can be very visionary about sort of getting back on subsidiarity. You know, in my dream world, it's very easy, yeah? We, we go over the nation states and we create the European Union, the, the Europe of the regions, yeah? We invent 50 regions of Europe from Scotland to Catalonia to Bavaria, we give them back most of the single market stuff in terms of regulatory issues on lamps or on whatever, you know, how dirty the water can be, whatever, yeah? And uh, the only thing I want for what I would then call my European Republic, yeah, because I'm no longer reasoning in the federation of nation states, but I would call it European Republic. I want foreign policy to get the global Europe. I want the currency stuff, and I want strategy. Huh? The rest goes to regions. You get two senators per region. Um, you send them to the European Republic in a sort of American-style electoral body scheme, and the question is, why can it not work? You would get, actually get many stuff back to the people. You would probably also get them back identity, you know, because we all have a right in German on Heimat. That's where you come from, where you feel like you are from. I'm from Northern Westphalia, but had German history books not told me that Bavaria is part of the German nation state, I would just not believe it, right? So I think what we need to accept mentally is that the nation state is just a historical artifact. There's no bio biologistical ontology of a nation state. And the moment we get there and we conceive ourselves rather than um, uh, members of a nation state, European citizens who want a European Republic, why do I'm saying European Republic? Because res publica is dear to me. Res publica, the sense of Platon to today's philosophy, is what I call the, wie heißt das, Alleinstellungsmerkmal, the singling, uh, the... The unique selling point, yeah, unique selling point. On, yeah, because go to China, go to uh, India, go to the U.S. or go to Russia, you don't find an entity in the world where an appropriate relationship between state and market and where the state has a positive function to regulate the living within a society is is an issue or is in value. So the moment that this is ours, and I would believe that most Europeans feel very strongly about this, this is our unique selling point. So it's about res publica that we should reason. So I think we can, if we, if we started honestly to frame this discussion this way, I would be very convinced that we can make it. Thank you, Rika. Mark, um, and I would ask Pandas, please keep the... Um, comments as brief as possible. Um, well, I'm not going to be as visionary uh, <laughs> as Ulrika, um, but uh, just maybe two quick things. Firstly, to your question, um, Mr. Martin, about the uh, democratic deficit. Um, I think the, the, the real problem with Europe is not an absence of democracy. Lots of people... I've uh, talked about a democratic deficit for a long time. I think if a Martian came down and looked at the European Union um, 
since the beginning of the crisis, their solution would probably be that there's too much democracy um, within the European Union. Um, governments don't seem to be able to do anything at all because they're so terrified of their citizens. In fact, there's so much democracy that governments don't even want to come clean on anything that they're doing, which is why they try and hide it from people by wrapping it up in these technical measures, empowering the ECB, which is the one body which is uh, not, which is deliberately insulated from, from, from politics. And if you look at all of the, the institutions which are elected, how completely illegitimate they are, like the European Parliament, where every single election less people uh, vote and uh, where I, I predict that in the next uh, after the next elections in 2014 we will have what I uh, have called a self-hating parliament in that a majority of members will be against the whole creation of the European Union including the existence of the European Parliament itself we'll see what happens but <laughs> it's not a completely fantastical thought in this country Peter Kellner who I think is the, the best uh, pollster predicts that UKIP uh, could very well be the, 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 the biggest victors in the elections. I hope he's wrong, but, uh, but uh, I, sadly UKIP is not the only political force in Europe which uh, doesn't believe in the existence of the European Union. Uh, so joking aside, um, I think that the problem is not an absence of, of, of democracy and of voting. The problem is an absence of politics, that there is a disjunction between where we have discussions and debates uh, and where uh, decisions uh, get made. And it's the wrong... We, we have European elections about the wrong sorts of issues. Nobody was able to have any say over the Maastricht convergence criteria, which have enormous implications about tax and spending. It's right at the heart of what politics should be about. Yet yeah, that was done... Uh, by executives in a way where there were no debates between left and right or other sorts of issues. And when we try and uh, talk about a democratic deficit, what we tend to do is, is to think about dragging people to the ballot box to elect bodies that don't actually have a say over most of the things that we really care about. And, and it's the council which is the real problem, the fact that the European Council doesn't Dis debate things and discuss things in a, in, a, in a more political way. Actually, maybe I'll just leave it there because I've already spoken yeah. for a long time if you're keen okay. to, to, I, to, I'm keen to Thank you, Mark. Yes, Jose Ignacio. Yeah, yes, briefly because when, when I listen to, you know, we have this, this, this argument on and on and, you know, I, I love the music of what Enrique says as a, as a good European is, but, you know, I cannot afford it um, because this is a very typical discussion that we are running through between firemen and architects. Uh, you have a long-term vision, a grand design for the future. Maybe you get there, uh, and it would be nice, you know. But uh, with that design, very few are going to make it. Um, because the urgency of today's challenges are existential as of today. And of course, uh, this is Part of the problem that precisely when you try to repair the thing at sea and improvise, the requirements which come very rationally and very understandable, both from the German Constitutional Court and the German Parliament and from an ideal model of democracy, are impossible to meet. Because I cannot supply a demos overnight 
to sustain a parliamentary democracy and a European public space with a European press, with European media, all those things, maybe the consequences would be the end products of all these things that we are doing that. But the German discourse and the German constitutional discourse, even if I understand the reasons and I share very much the theoretical uh, and the normative reasons why they do it, take those things as prerequisites. So you won't have your bonds until there is this and that. You won't have all these things until. So this is this, the discussion that we're having, and I think it's very important that we find a way to bridge these things. Um, and, but the problem is that when you pose those debates in terms of a moral rather than the practical issues, you cannot split the difference. Uh, and it's very difficult to, to get there. So, you know, that European Union, federal union that you paint is very nice, but um, uh, it won't be not even a union at 15. I think if, if, if we follow Mark, probably there will be a union at a one and a half, including Germany and Austria or something like that. But it's a long way back, you know, to end up <laughs> with one, one and a half union. But just, just a short comment. So, Thank you, <laughs> Anthony. I mean, I suppose my take on this is that we should avoid uh, overly um, making overly absolute our analysis of this situation. I mean, if you look at the development of the European Union, it has been built on compromise at every successive stage, and it's hardly surprising, therefore, that at the moment we're having to grapple with some of the consequences of these compromises. If you take the question of debt and deficits, Germany didn't succeed in getting what it wanted in the Maastricht Treaty. The uh, provisions of the treaty on 60% and 3% were inadequately solid from the point of view of what Bonn and Frankfurt had wanted at that time. If you look at the Stability and Growth Pact, it was a German initiative to come back to these questions. Again, the outcome was very, very much below the ambition which, say, Theo Weibel had at that time. You look at the uh, Euro Plus Pact, the commitments in terms of structural reform much vaguer and less uh, definitive than the German initiative which underpinned it. And so it seems to me very likely that the operation of the Fiscal Compact Treaty will also fall short of what um, Frankfurt and Berlin hope for. And I think that's just part of the real politique of the European Union, that this dialogue goes on just as you have the dialogue between the supranational and the intergovernmental, so you have the dialogue between these two different visions of how EMU should operate. And I think Picking up on the, the point that uh, um, Mark made about the potential conflict, which I thought was extremely interesting, between the solution to the single currency and the operation of the single market, and picking up the point that Robert Morland made uh, up there about the future of the single market, I think that these are two absolute notions. The single currency is about the sharing of monetary sovereignty, and there is no way out of there being a single decision point when it comes to monetary sovereignty. The question of the single market is ultimately about free movement. Free movement is ultimately an absolute concept. And when the European Union has gone for absolute concepts, as it's done with those two, it's hardly surprising that there might be contradictions in the way that they play out. Whereas more normally the way the EU proceeds is as in foreign policy or as in many of the more routine domestic policies of the Union, in terms of less absolute notions which are based even conceptually on, on compromise.
Thank you, Anthony. Okay, we'll, we'll just have time, I'm afraid, for one more round, and uh, uh, I'm going to take those um, quickly. Um, Graham Bishop had caught my eye. I'd also like to invite, uh, there is a spectrum of views, as you've seen on the platform, um, but I'd like to invite um, a strong Eurosceptic, um, <laughs> uh, please, to have uh, somebody, I was trying to catch my eye there, who I recognise to be a robust Eurosceptic, and I think, I think we need to hear that voice as well in this discussion. Um, uh, Graham Bishop, to start. Yes. Graham Bishop, independent commentator on uh, finance and economics. Um, why is it that the panel, actually with the notable exception of Anthony, has largely ignored the tremendous and profound economic integration and policy-making that has already happened from the six-pack, the fiscal compact treaty, and the two-pack, which is about to be agreed. And these are very profound matters. And when it's in force fully, and we've got the um, European semester and so on has gone through several times, we've had two so far, just starting the third, I suspect that this is going to go a long way to solving many, not all, but many of the problems of the Eurozone. So we will finish up in a couple of years' time with the recovery beginning because of this sort of economic policy-making integration. When we come to the 2016-ish, 15-16 treaty and the 2017 referendum on it, this is where output diplomacy comes into action. Who's going to vote to go back to recession, years of recession? Why not vote for exactly what is now formalised? Thank you, Graham. Um, yes, up there, a well-known Eurosceptic. <laughs> Jeremy Mayhew, moderate Eurosceptic. Um, for better or worse, is there a probably unintentional alliance between European integrationists and British and maybe other, but I speak with less knowledge of other, Eurosceptics? In other words, the more the integrationists succeed, the more likely it is that, again, to speak just to Britain, the more likely it is that Britain will either exit or CK semi-detached relationship. Thank you very much. And, time for, and one more question. I haven't had a, a lady yet in the audience. Um, I, I might... Um, anyone... Um, no, not asking at the moment. Sorry. Oh, we do here. Sorry. Excellent. Yes, please. Valtraud. Uh, Valtraud Schaefer from the European Institute. I'm afraid not a Eurosceptic. Uh, but, Ulrike, as much as I, you know glad to hear that there are still these um, dreams out there. I find them hard to follow. But the starting point I find also very problematic. To say that the ECB is the sovereign at the moment, an institution that has been pushed into this role and actually is, is the, the, the puzzle for political economists that doesn't want to have that power, I think you should not repeat that because that I mean, plays into these, these uh, horror stories that all well, perhaps you talk too much to French Marxists that, that portray the European Union as something that it isn't. I mean, it's not the rule of money. I mean, they do try. If you ever looked into a stabilization program for Greece or Portugal, they do try to keep a progressive uh, thing in all these cuts. I have just heard a paper that really shows that the rich pay in these countries for the austerity measures, and that has to be said sometimes too. And it's not that you know, the money men rule the roost. Thank you very much. Good. Um, we might start the other way this time. Anthony, would you like to? 
I agree with uh, Jeremy Mayhew's basic proposition, which is that I think the deeper Eurozone integration is, the more likely it is that there's going to be a crisis, a deep crisis in Britain's relationship with the European Union, because fundamentally, reverting to the issue of the single market that we were just alluding to, it's very difficult to see how the Eurozone won't prioritise its own interests in single market matters at a critical moment. We're already seeing a kind of advanced wave of this problem in respect of banking union and financial services regulation, but it seems to me that this problem is going to grow rather than become less acute as the Eurozone deepens. Of course, we're taking it for granted that the Eurozone deepening process will happen and that it will be a success. I mean, those are both assumptions which we can't at this stage be absolutely sure of. Um, on the, um, I, I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. Okay, thank you. Who's yeah. Ignacio? No, just I think it's worth to have this discussion about the ECB effect because it's true that it has become a sort of shadow government and not with easiness, of course, but in fact, uh, if you know, if you read the exact wording of the letter to Berlusconi and Zapatero, which was in, published in La Repubblica, I think, or Corriere. Uh, in full, I mean, the, the number of measures they're asking the government to adopt steps so much out of their mandate, even if you, from a, from a normative, practical, even, you know, any point of view, would accept that these were the right things to be recommended at that point, they step so much out of their authority that it, they need some kind, sort of political and democratic clearance at some point. Maybe there were emergency measures, but then... Moreover, what they say at the end is, and we recommend these measures not to be adopted, or sorry, they, they, they put it in a, in, in a better way. We recommend these measures to be adopted by decree so they don't run through parliament and they don't get stuck there. Uh, it's, it's a bit too much, you know, even from people who are pro-reform and, and so on. And when you see, and, and I want to challenge the effectiveness of these institutions in their, in their programs, only that the IMF has had the courage so far to, um, to, to recognize that what they're doing in Greece has never been done before, that no country has ever been reformed without the capacity to, uh, to devaluate. And they are in uncharted territory, and I think the, it was a very senior official from the IMF who resigned and left and, and, and said, you know, we, we don't know what we're doing and we're failing. Nobody, nobody from the ECB and the European Commission has taken the courage to say, to open a discussion of what is exactly that they're doing. Because believe me, and I think this is the case in Spain, in, in Italy, in Portugal, they are not looking at the distribution of costs uh, internally. It is not fair, the policies they are supporting, it is not fair the distribution of costs. They are blind as to the sort of expenditures they are targeting. It doesn't matter whether it's research and development or highways. It is not intelligent and it's not subject to public discussion. Maybe it's intelligent, but we will know just because of the results, not because we are able to participate in a targeted discussion, in a democratic discussion about these measures. It's very blind and very foolish, and I think it's backfiring, and they know it but they are not subject to public scrutiny. And this is what is creating mm -hmm. havoc in, in all countries. I used to come, I mean, I come from a country which never accepted the discourse of democratic deficit because we always said my country is more democratic because it is member of the European Union, precisely because of that reason. Any country becoming, being member of the Union is more democratic. But there are reasons throughout this crisis to challenge that assumption, and we have to give good grounds 
for people who challenge that assumption. And so far, we're not very good at that because we don't have those reasons. Okay. Thank you, Jose. Mark. Um, briefly answer Mr. Mayhew's point about whether there's a, a marriage made in heaven between British Eurosceptics and Eurozone uh, visionaries. And um, I, I don't think there is, because I think that the settled view of the British public is that it wants to be in the European Union. Robert Cooper has a very good phrase to describe Euroscepticism in Britain, which is that it's an elite project. So a small fraction of, uh, of uh, the Conservative Party and UKIP who want to take Britain out of the European Union, they don't actually represent many people in, because their level of passion uh, with which they want to take Britain out is completely out of sync with the public who are by and large uh, relatively sort of satisfied with the status quo. If they don't like it, they don't care about it as much as they do many other issues. It's not one of the top issues which uh, motivates them when they wake up in the morning and which uh, keeps them awake at night when they, uh, when they, when they go to sleep. So um, uh, I think we're only really going to settle this if there is a crisis, and a crisis would actually be quite a good thing because what we're doing at the moment is sleepwalking out of the European Union and we're going to end up in a place which nobody in Britain really wants to, to be in except for this small minority uh, of people. And I think that I personally would welcome the chance to have a real debate about where Britain's future lies. I think it's in the European Union. We can't escape our geography. We can't escape the economic advantages of having a home market of 500 million consumers rather than just the number of people who live in Britain. And we can't escape the fact that there are all sorts of problems which go beyond uh, national boundaries for which you would need to invent a European Union if there wasn't one already. And we also can't escape the fact that today's world is one where you have a billion Chinese and a billion Indians and hundreds of millions of Americans who uh, want to write the rules for the 21st century and that if, unless Britain makes common cause with other countries that share similar uh, interests to ours, we're not going to be heard in that world. And I'm very happy to have that debate with Mr Mayhew, with other people who want to take us outside of the, the European <laughs> Union. And, uh, but I think the way we have that debate is something which is kind of important, because I think the worst outcome of, of uh, uh, the, uh, the worst way of settling it is to have some sort of uh, mock renegotiation of the terms of membership a la Harold Wilson, which is what the government seems to be proposing at the moment, followed by a pseudo-debate about whether uh, changes to the working time directive make our position so fundamentally different to what it was before the negotiations that we should therefore stay in the European Union. I'm personally not a big fan of, of referenda to, to resettle the status quo either because uh, we had had a referenda, we had had a debate in it, but I think we have to have a real discussion about what's happening to, uh, to British influence in the world and to the British economy as a result of all the uncertainty that has been created about this. And if there is a referendum, I'm certainly going to, to, to feel very confident arguing the case because I think that most Brits uh, want to be in the European Union because that is the most sensible place for us to be. We can't escape to the mid-Atlantic or the Pacific. And I, I don't think that people want to shrink Britain's capacity to have a say in the world to the level of Norway or Singapore, which is what will happen if we end up outside of the European Union. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, Mark, thank you for that call to arms. Uh, Ulrika, you will have the pleasure of, of closing the discussion. Um, on the ECB, just to make the point, I also believe with natural that the ECB saved us and the system, but still we need to put legitimacy behind because it's not a durable situation. I think that's the way to see it. And to Graham, I think I mentioned that we are basically what I call in German in the process of Altbausanierung of the system. You know, it's like these beautiful historical monuments where you basically keep the facade, but in the inside you get new electricity and so that's what the European Union is doing. We keep the history of European Union facade and in the inside six pack, two pack fiscal compact and now, I mean I invite you to read it but this three step plan of the genuine uh, the report of von Rompuy for a genuine and deep monetary and economic union. I mean if we only get half done of what's in it, I bet it's still enough to make the union a very different union from here over the next 10 years. And that's why the argument that I'm pretty cool on the British side, because timing will be essential. If I'm not mistaken, the next government will probably go for a referendum in the next legislation, which means between 2015 and 2019, is that right? The longer you wait, the more you are in, because then I think also the growth will come be back to the south. So the EU, the, we will be in the whole process of Agenda 20, the, the new horizon thing. We will have a deeply reformed and modernized uh, European Union, which will stand not so badly to the U.S. and with other uh, currency zones. So um, the later the referendum comes, the more the Brits will see that there's a sparkling continent uh, to which they want to belong. <laughs> Well, I guess stranger things have happened. Uh, uh, Brits seeing a sparkling continent, but not not many stranger. Um, not many. Um, uh, I hope you feel uh, that this existential crisis has brought about some challengingly existential answers of, of a variety of stripes. It has to be said. I think we've had a, a very rewarding hour and a half. We're just over. Um, I'm sure you'll want to show your appreciation to the panel. I'd like to thank them myself for an excellent discussion. Thank you all for coming.